If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Take something iconic, like the all-electric 2024 Fiat 500e. Add something electrica. Bring the swagger. And an Italian icon is remixed and ready to drop with its available premium JBL audio system. Tap the banner to learn more. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA. Used under license by FCA US LLC. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. As recent history has shown us, human societies can prove surprisingly frail in the face of a tiny yet powerful force, the microbes that cause infectious diseases. In his new book, Pathogenesis, Jonathan Kennedy charts some of the ways in which germs and the contagions that they cause have altered the course of history. Matt Elton caught up with him to find out more. This is obviously something that you research and you you teach. How did that feel, having this subject suddenly thrust into the spotlight over the past three, four years or so? It's been a really fascinating few few years for me, although like everyone else, somewhat disturbing to see the progress of the of the epidemic of the pandemic. And my background is in history, but for the last six, seven years, I've taught public health in a medical school, and I've spent quite a lot of time looking at vaccine hesitancy. So when when the pandemic arrived, I was really, really quite interested to see how things would would evolve. But um, I think in a way, this book is is to some extent my my therapy because for the first few months it was really quite stressful watching the news and reading the newspaper and you know having having so much information about something that you're so interested in so after a couple of months I decided to take a step back 
and write this this history of the of the world and um, this history of how infectious diseases have impacted the world over the last kind of 60,000 60, years. The ways in which human history and disease intersect is obviously a major, major theme of this book. To rewind right to the very start, is there a point in human history at which this relationship first became significant or that we can trace to being the very first uh, step in this process? Well, I think, you know, we have to first appreciate that we've evolved in a world that's been dominated by bacteria and viruses. So they've always been always been there and they've always had an impact on us in good and bad ways, as we'll probably talk about in a in a little while. But I think the the period at which infectious diseases emerged in a way that we're we're kind of aware of them at the moment is the the so-called Neolithic Revolution. So about twelve thousand years ago, people in the Middle East in the Fertile Crescent began to experiment with farming. So they they began to cultivate crops and to rear animals. And perhaps 3,000 years later, um, the vast majority of people in the region got the vast majority of their calories from settled settled farming. And this this was an absolute revolution in the way that that humans had had lived for the past 200,000 years or so we'd lived as hunter gatherers and um then all of a sudden we we settle down and start farming and you see various other um processes similar to this around the around the world a little bit after after what was occurring in the in the fertile crescent um but this meant that for the for the first time lots and lots of humans were living in densely populated and insanitary settlements um, very close to to animals. And so this created the opportunity for many infectious diseases to hop from from animals to humans. And it also created the conditions for these pathogens to transmit from one person to another, either either through the air or through water um, that was infected. And also the fact that people started trading um, created the opportunity for diseases to travel long, long distances. So for epidemics and pandemics to to occur and there's been a lot of really interesting research in genetics that has showed that many of the diseases that have have plagued if you excuse the the pun humans for the last few thousand years emerged in the wake of the adoption of farming so um, diseases like Yersinia pestis that's plague polio smallpox measles which have had a, had an absolutely devastating impact on on humans emerged around around this time, and yes, yeah, certainly it's it's interesting in the in the context of COVID because I think you know within the first few weeks of COVID arriving, it became a cliche to say that it was unprecedented, it was extraordinary. But actually, when you look at the the long durée, when you look at um, history over the long term, you see that it's anything but unprecedented. That time and again you have these devastating pandemics that come along and they kill millions of people at various points in history they bring down whole civilizations but it's not all bad news at times they create the space new ideas and new societies to emerge and so in that way they've been one of the great motors of history and they're behind some of the really big transformations in 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 history one of the recurring themes in your book is the fact that they've shaped 
history to such a great extent and we haven't always acknowledged them as a factor in the shape of human history. Do you think that's something about the fact that they are so small or so unseen or do you think it's more about the fact that outside of our control or all of those things? So even if we go back to the the Old Testament, the Bible, and we look at Genesis, it's very, very anthropocentric. God creates man and woman in his own image and he supposedly grants us dominion over the the land, the sea, and the animals. So the natural world is just a a stage on which humans are the protagonists. And if you look at a lot of a lot of history, it's really kind of um carried on this this perspective, this way of looking at the world, um, whether it's the the kind of old school great man of history theories or or if it's kind of more left-wing studies of history that really focus on large numbers of people, so on classes, um, the natural world is still very much seen as a stage on which these these individuals and these groups play out their their roles. And you know, I think it's 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 becoming increasingly evident that you know the world or the natural world at least isn't a isn't a stage. It's um, better to conceptualize it as an ecosystem and we're just one small part of that ecosystem and we we play a big role in the world but um we're certainly massively influenced by other factors including microbes um but also things like climate climate change so it's only relatively recently that humans have actually really understood the role that microbes play in the world um so this this kind of world of microbes that's on the one hand so tiny that we can't see it, but on the other hand so vast that the numbers are, are just mind-blowing, um, was first discovered by a Dutch haberdasher in the late 17th century, um, a man called Antony von Leeuwenhoek, if if Dutch people can can forgive my my pronunciation. And he he obviously sold textiles, but he also had a little bit of a penchant for grinding lenses. And I believe this was because he wanted to inspect the cloth that he was he was buying and selling. Um, but then he also began to start looking at various things with these lenses. And he looked at water and he looked at the plaque in teeth. He saw this new world that was absolutely teeming with microscopic life. He called the things that he saw animacules. And some of these were bacteria and some of these were other other microbes, things like protozoa. This is probably the closest that any human has got to kind of falling down the rabbit hole and finding themselves in a world of fantastical creatures. And, you know, one can still read the letters that he wrote to the Royal Society in London, just expressing how how astonished he was and how enraptured he was with what he had seen. Um, but he didn't really understand the role that these animacules, these microbes played in the world. It wasn't until 200 years later, so towards the end of the 19th century that people like Louis Pasteur started to understand that these little microbes played a, a massive role in the functioning of our planets and even our bodies. Yes, yeah, so Pasteur was the first person to realise that infectious diseases weren't caused by imbalances of humours or black magic or unfortunate constellations of, of, of planets, that it was these tiny little animacules, um, bacteria, we hadn't discovered viruses yet, that made people made people ill. And even so, it 
we're still discovering a lot about how these microbes impact our impact our world and impact us. So there's been some really, really, really fascinating studies in the natural sciences over the last 10, 20 years uh, that have really kind of emphasized the role that that, that, that that microbes play, not just in causing infectious diseases, but also in the the really kind of healthy functioning of our planet and of our bodies and even our minds. So I think the the study that really kind of startled me and also encouraged me to to write this book was was by some Belgian scientists and they were looking at the bacteria that were in our stomachs. So I think we all know now about the microbiome that there's something like 40 trillion bacteria in our bodies, uh, so slightly more bacteria than there are human cells. And if we take this all together, it weighs something like one to two kilos, so the same as our our brains. And these bacteria, many of them live in our stomach, and they they don't make us sick. They actually have evolved with us, and they perform all sorts of really important processes in our body. And probably the main one is help us digesting food. So it's a symbiotic relationship. We we provide the bacteria with a, a warm, relatively safe environment in our stomachs with a hopefully constant supply of food and nutrients. And they help us to digest these nutrients in the way that we can process. But this this study looked at looked at the bacteria that was in the the feces of about 2,000 Belgians, and it found that 90% of the strains they looked at were capable of producing neurotransmitters. So these are are basically chemical messengers that can impact our brains, so things like serotonin and dopamine. And so this, this seems to suggest that these bacteria have evolved over millions of years to communicate with our bodies. And there's various theories as to why they they would do this. But one one theory is that if they're producing neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin that make us happy and make us want to socialize, this creates opportunities for for the bacteria to spread from one body to another. So it kind of helps it colonize other other bodies. Um, and I remember reading this and just just being absolutely kind of astonished it's astonishing in several several ways one the impact that it might have on on medicine so the fact that in the future we might not treat depression with prozac or with therapy you might be kind of prescribed a a fecal transplant by the by the doctor but also it got me thinking about you know what does it mean to be human if these tiny bacteria that we can't see um that we don't really don't really kind of appreciate it there um, have such a big influence on us as individuals, even on the way that we think, what impact do they have on aggregations of bodies? So the body politic, the body economic, the body social, what influence do they have on history? And I guess that was also a starting point for thinking about this this book. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. 
and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's extraordinary when you talk about them like that. Just just the, the, the extent to which they can have an influence on the course of an individual life. So when we scale up to the course of an entire civilization, what does that tell us? Say, for instance, we were to head back to the ancient world. What impact did these tiny microbes have on ancient civilizations at a civilization level? Well, in short, a really profound influence. If we look at one of the first historians, one of the first historical tracts, um, Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War, which is obviously about the, the conflict in the 5th century BC between Athens on the one hand and Sparta on the other. He provides the first account of an outbreak of infectious disease, and he talks about its, its, its influence on the, the, the whole kind of outcome of the, of the war. And I think this is really really important the fact that you know the if we if we say it's the second historical account after Herodotus's histories the second account in history has a really detailed description of infectious diseases and its impact on on Athens it shows us how vital how vital pandemics and epidemics have been in in history um so you know if we go back to ancient ancient Athens in the middle of the 5th century BC it came kind of crashing down with the start of the Peloponnesian War with Sparta, and Sparta was a really different type of type of policy. It was militaristic, it was oligarchic, and it was it was about as as different to to Athens as you could as you could imagine, really. And so, when the Spartan army invaded Attica, the rural inhabitants retreated behind the the great city walls of Athens, and this created the kind of perfect conditions for an epidemic to occur. So Thucydides suggests that it came via a ship from Alexandria and it spread quickly throughout the population and killed maybe a third of the people, including including lots of the soldiers and um, also Pericles. And Thucydides writes about how this really has a big impact on the, on the war. Even though the war went on for another 25 years, um, Athens was weakened and it wasn't just weakened for a few years it was weakened for you know generations because of the loss of of people and also you know with Pericles the Athenians lost a a really great statesman and a great general who devised this defensive plan which made really perfect sense from a military perspective but was was a disaster from a public health perspective and after this he was replaced by all sorts of of 
less able leaders who uh, undertook a variety of pretty disastrous campaigns, including the the decision to to invade Sicily. So this is the first point in history that we we see an epidemic really kind of change the the trajectory of of of, of history. And you know this is just the first of of many many examples. But it's it's kind of really important if we think of ancient Athens as the first iteration of of Western civilization, and it was brought crashing down by by an outbreak of infectious disease, possibly small smallpox people people think. Um, but then, you know, we move on to to ancient Rome and um, Kyle Harper has written a, a great book about about this um, called The Fate of Rome, which really brings infectious diseases back into the story of, of Rome. He basically describes how the success of Rome in the first century of the, the first millennium really created the conditions for infectious diseases to arrive and to, to spread. So you know, Rome was a vast, vast empire at this point in time. It stretched all the way from Hadrian's Wall to the Arabian Peninsula in the in the east. You know, Rome was a a massive city at this time. It was a city of over a million people, and um, that that kind of that size of city wasn't reached again until London in the in the eighteen hundreds. So it's really really remarkable. Also, the Romans they had trade links with, you know, much of the so-called old world. So they'd obviously trade with with sub-Saharan Africa. We know this because of all the animals that were that were being used in the in the Colosseum. We also know that they were were trading with with India. There was an Indian Indian town that was big enough to have a a temple that was dedicated to to one of the Roman Roman gods, but also. We we know from the Chinese imperial records that um, the Romans first arrived in the middle of the second century, second century common era, and so this really created the conditions that were ideal for new pathogens to arrive from somewhere else, and then once they arrived, to spread quickly through the big towns, but also through this this kind of well connected, densely populated empire. And um, first of all, the Antonine Plague brought the Pax Romana to an end. And then you have a, a series of other other pandemics um, over the next 500 years that really have a crucial impact on, on the history of, of ancient Rome. Something that strikes me about this is it's this is such sweeping epic history. Do we get a sense of a human's place in this story by taking such a top level sort of macro view of, of it? I suppose we really have to be careful not to be nihilistic. Um, we can look at the science and we can look at the history and we can show that infectious diseases have played a really, really enormous role. Um, but this doesn't mean that humans can't make a difference. This doesn't mean that we should just give up and um, let let microbes do their, do their things. Um, to kind of misquote Marx, I guess, uh, humans can still make their own, own history, but it's not in circumstances of their own choosing necessarily. It's in circumstances created in part by infectious disease outbreaks, but also by other other phenomena related to the natural world. So so climate change and, and things like that. And you know, we certainly know that humans aren't aren't blameless in the emergence of of pandemics or in climate change. So that also means that we can mitigate the impact of of these of these changes that occur in the natural world. 
Can we talk about the ways in which, I suppose, the colonisation of the Americas was, the outcome of that was shaped by the presence of disease? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I think, you know, most people's view of the colonisation of Americas probably fits in pretty well with the title of Jared Diamond's book, um, Guns, Germs and Steel. So germs were part of the story, but also Europeans and the Spanish in particular had better weapons and were so much more technologically advanced that it would have been inevitable anyway that the that the Europeans would have would have colonized the Americas. But I think, you know, you can you can compare this to some modern day historical events and you can see how how absurd it is that, you know, if we think about the conquest of the Mexica or the Aztecs in in the 1520s, the fact that Hernan Cortes went to Mesoamerica with a thousand troops and he managed to conquer this vast empire that ranged from the Atlantic to the Pacific, where the capital city had several hundred thousand inhabitants, was four times bigger than the biggest city in Spain. And within within a couple of, of years, the Spanish had managed to conquer the, the 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 whole of Mesoamerica or even even more absurd is um is Pizarro 10 years later when he went to South America and conquered the great Inca empire um with 168 soldiers you know it's kind of this can't be understood unless you understand the the really phenomenal role that infectious diseases played and this was a secret weapon so the conquistadors brought these diseases from the old world that the population of the Americas had no immunity to. And this just devastated, devastated them. Um, best estimates suggest that the population of the Americas fell from something like 60 million when Columbus arrived to 6 million 100 years later. And this this fall in population is is pretty much unprecedented in history. It's it's possible to look at the ice cores that have been drilled in Greenland and see the impact of of this on levels of carbon dioxide in the in the air. Meteorologists suggest that it would have led to a decrease in the world's temperature and that it contributed to the little ice age that was occurring in Europe in the 1600s. And it's ethnocentric nonsense, basically, to to think that Europeans could have could have conquered the Americas without the impact of, of these diseases. And I think we can see that very clearly when we compare the Americas to, to Africa um, and the colonization of, of Africa. In some respects, there are, there are some similarities. So Europeans really coveted the natural resources in, in West Africa. In the Middle Ages, it was the main source of gold in, in Europe. And, you know, we might think about West Africa now as being a, a very poor region, but in in the Middle Ages it was seen as a, a source of vast vast wealth, and this was in part informed by the the stories of Mansa Musa, the the Malian emperor, traveling to Arabia on pilgrimage in the 13th century, and supposedly he he took tons and tons of pure gold with him, and he handed it out with such abandon on his way that it led to um, or it depressed the price of gold for for decades in the eastern Mediterranean region, um, and we can see this by looking at at maps of the Middle Ages too. Africa is a region that's presented as being very very wealthy. So, 
you know, Europeans wanted to to conquer Africa. They just they just couldn't. And, you know, part of this was because, you know, there were strong and sophisticated um civilizations, polities there that made it difficult. Um, but also we have to look at the role of of infectious diseases. Um, the Europeans didn't benefit from the secret weapon of smallpox, measles, and other diseases because Africa was still part of the the old world. There were still trade links. So um, Africans would have, on the whole, have developed some kind of immunity. But we also see a, a kind of different role for infectious diseases. So West Africa was a place with perfect conditions for falciparum malaria, the most deadly form of, of, of malaria. Even today in West Africa, it kills hundreds of thousands of, of young children. But um, if you're lucky enough to survive, if you're repeatedly exposed to malaria, then after a while, you develop some kind of resistance. So, you know, you don't show such such extreme symptoms. But for the European adults who were arriving in Africa for the first time and being exposed to malaria, it was just, you know, really, really deadly. So even in the 18th, 19th century, historians have estimated that something like 50 to 70% of, of would-be settlers were killed by infectious diseases, mainly malaria, in the first year in which they lived in in, in in West Africa. And in fact, um, in the early 19th century, people talked about West Africa being a white man's a white man's grave because it killed so many, so many um would-be European settlers. You can really see the impact of this because even if you look at at the African continent in 1870, it's hardly it's hardly been colonized by by the, the Europeans at all. Um, at this point South America has been controlled by the by the Spanish and their descendants for for centuries, but about ten percent of the African landmass is under European control, and this is only in the kind of temperate regions in the very south, um, the South African provinces, and then in the north, um, with Algeria being controlled by the by the French. Um, the vast majority of the African continent is is impenetrable to to Europeans until the the widespread use of quinine and then it becomes kind of kind of bearable but i think this this comparison between on the one hand the americas and the african continent really kind of illustrates the the role that infectious diseases played in history the fact that on the one hand in the americas um diseases like smallpox were uh, unwittingly uh, but still a very important secret weapon that was that was carried by the Europeans, and if we look at the attempt to to settle in in Africa, you see that diseases like malaria, but also we could talk about yellow fever, really create this defensive force field that make the make the continent more or less in, impenetrable. We should talk about slavery as part of this story. You write that the emergence of American slavery and the ideology of racism used to justify it had a great deal to do with infectious disease. Can you talk us through this this story? The main point to realise is that although you know slavery has been a phenomenon throughout history, and if we if we go back to the so-called Neolithic Revolution, we can see the enslavement of humans as a an extension of the domestication of animals right it's kind of it's this process of dehumanizing humans and treating them as beasts of 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 burden but what really 
surprised me when I was researching this book was the fact that up until about 1500, there was no association between the colour of one's skin and one's kind of capability for servitude, for slavery. And this seems to come about as a result of a variety of contingent factors, including the role of infectious diseases like malaria and yellow fever. So one of the interesting quirks of history is the fact that Christopher Columbus arrived in the Americas in 1492, the very same year that the Spanish monarchs Isabel and Fernando defeated the emirate of of Granada and finally reconquered the Iberian Peninsula. And of course, these two are, are connected, but I think the important thing to remember here is that up until the completion of the Reconquista, the main source of slave labour in in Spain would have been from captured Muslims. And obviously, after 1492, this source of slave labour is no longer available. Southern Europeans might also have looked to the Black Sea slave markets, and this was another major source of slave slave labor um the capturing of of um peoples that were living to the north of the of the black sea and of course genovese merchants played a big a big role in this and um you know we shouldn't forget that columbus was was a genovese sailor but um with the with the expansion of the ottomans in the eastern mediterranean this this source of slave labor was also drying up and so the the Spanish had to had to look elsewhere for people to work. And so this created a big problem for the Spanish, who at the time were colonizing the tropical parts of the, the Americas, because they wanted to set up plantations. They found in the Caribbean soil and a climate that was perfect for growing sugar, which was in massive demand back back home. But infectious diseases had killed the local population. And as we were talking about the the, the, the regular sources of slave labor had dried up. So what they did was they turned to um, the, the slave markets of West Africa and they began to bring these very unfortunate Africans across the, the Atlantic to work on their sugar plantations. And this basically set up a path dependency that made it impossible for other colonizing nations to choose other ways of of organizing their colonies. So I think Barbados is a really interesting example in this respect. So the British colonized Barbados in in the, the 1620s. They wanted to set up a sugar plantation to again cash in on the demand for sugar back home. But there was no recent history of slavery in in in, in the British Isles. Um, so what they did was the British decided they would adapt the kind of traditional system of apprenticeship to the new world. And basically they they devised this system of indentured labor where people would would basically get their get a free ticket across the Atlantic. They would have basically food and accommodation for a number of years, three, five, seven years. And when they had completed this period, they were free to go and make a new life in the in the new world. And so this this made perfect perfect sense and even Adam Smith talks about this in the in the wealth of nations. You know, he objects to slavery 
from a moral perspective, but he also says that it makes perfect economic sense to um, employ free laborers rather than slave laborers because the cost of controlling your enslaved labors is so great. And because these slave laborers have very little incentive to work hard and a um, many reasons to try and escape, many reasons to cause cause chaos. It's just it, it didn't make any any sense to him. The thing that Smith didn't realize, and the problem that the Barbadian landowners had, was that when the Spanish had brought Africans over over the Atlantic to to work as slave laborers, they'd also brought um, yellow fever and and malaria. And so, in the middle of the 16th century, there was a massive yellow fever outbreak in in Barbados. It killed half of the population. So the plantation owners realized that enslaved laborers from West Africa had developed resistance and immunity to yellow fever and malaria, whereas the European indentured laborers happened. And so this basically, after a while, meant that throughout the whole of the Caribbean, throughout the whole of the tropical region of, of Africa, all plantation owners chose this 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 way of organizing their plantations where they employed slave labor in in horrific conditions so you know i think it's really interesting to see how infectious diseases brought out the worst in in humans in 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 this case and you know the the impact of this is absolutely catastrophic right if we think something like 12 million people were shipped across the atlantic from from west africa Two million died on the journey. Those that arrived were sold into slavery and had to live in in really, really terrible conditions. Do you think that our response to COVID-19 was in any meaningful way shaped by this history? Or were there, I suppose, lessons from the past that we should have taken on board but didn't? I think what's really striking is that the initial public health response um so before effective vaccines were developed and remember that took that took a whole year were incredibly similar to the public health response that was that was used in the middle ages and the early modern period so the basic point of the public health response was to restrict the movement of people and to reduce the opportunities for um basically the the virus to jump from one person to another and you know, this is this is very very similar to, I guess, the quarantines and the cordon sanitaire of of the past. Um, it's just the modern iteration of of that. So, you know, of course, quarantine comes from the Italian for forty quaranta, and um, this is because the Italian city states um, basically towards the end of the fourteenth century started to force ships that were coming into their ports to quarantine to isolate for a period of time before they could enter the enter the city and over time this got regularized as 40 days and this has no scientific significance this was based on on the bible so 40 days was the what the amount of time that the the floods lasted in genesis and the amount of time that jesus went to the to the wilderness um but it was long enough for the plague to to um basically burn out on a ship if it was infected. And um, so this became kind of very common throughout Europe. And then you also had these kind of quite remarkable cordon sanitaires. And I think the the most interesting example comes from the Habsburg 
empire and they had a kind of one and a half thousand kilometer military border with the Ottoman Empire in, in I guess, kind of south and eastern Eastern Europe. And this was seen as a big source of the, the plague. And between 1710 and 1871, they um, basically kind of had a had a massive cordon sanitaire. And if you wanted to pass from the Ottoman Empire into the Habsburg Empire, you had to go to these quarantine centers and stay there for 48 days and if you tried to cheat the system you were you were um likely to be tried by a military court and the worst punishment you could have was was being being killed so yeah it's on the one hand it's really interesting to see how you know we haven't we haven't moved on that that far but i think also you know we have to acknowledge the massive role that um medical advances have played in the last hundred years or so and particularly played in the in the covid covid pandemic so basically we see you know this development of vaccines in in a miraculously short time that turned the virus from what seemed like an existential threat at some point into a vaccine preventable disease more uh, more or less you know when you look at the history of infectious diseases and when you think of fact that we're living on this planet and we're surrounded by viruses and bacterias which are everywhere and are mutating all the time sometimes in ways that can can harm us it can seem you know pretty scary we can feel pretty pretty vulnerable but i think you know we shouldn't be hubristic but the developments in medical science in the last few years have really been phenomenal and i think they can give us hope um, as a species that we that we can survive That was Jonathan Kennedy. Pathogenesis, How Germs Made History is out now, published by Torva. And if you're intrigued to find out more about how humanity's progress has been accompanied by a revolving door of parasites, bacteria and viruses, then be sure to check out our previous podcast episode with Kyle Harper, who explored how microbes have wreaked havoc on our health. Just search for Plagues of Our Past wherever you get your podcasts to bring that up. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.